Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Everyday Lives of Ordinary People and celebrates All Saints Day 2005. It's based upon the lecture readings for Sunday, November 6, 2005. I don't know if you will celebrate Halloween on October 31st, All Hallows or All Holy Eve, but I hope you will commemorate All Saints Day on November 1st. Christian literature of the 4th century indicates that believers honored saints in their liturgies, but for Western believers, All Saints Day as we now observe it took final form in the year 835, when Pope Gregory IV ordered the Feast of All Saints to be universally observed on November the 1st. For their part, Eastern Orthodox churches observe All Saints Day on the first Sunday after Pentecost. Christians differ in their estimations about who and what constitutes a saint, and so they celebrate this feast day differently. Catholics and Orthodox believers venerate saints as extraordinary Christians whose lives were characterized by heroic virtue and genuine miracles. For example, Saints Francis or Patrick come to mind. They venerate but do not worship these deceased saints and pray to them for help. I'm grateful for the inspiring examples of these remarkable Christians, but as a Protestant, I follow the lead of the Lutherans and affirm that every ordinary believer is a saint, not just the elite heroes. Paul, for example, addressed his letters to all the saints, quote-unquote, in Rome, Ephesus, and Philippi. Being a Christian is one of the few things in life you cannot or should not try to do alone. We need help from all the saints, dead and alive, crazy and normal, known and unknown, and especially the everyday, ordinary believers. Two weeks ago, I received an email from one such ordinary believer in Australia. She would be the first to admit that she is no Mother Teresa, but I imagine her as the sort of anonymous saint that Paul addressed in his letters. Here is her unedited letter. Dear Dan, I live outside a small town of 200 people and belong to the Uniting Church in Eidsvold, Queensland, Australia. We belong to the Central Burnett Parish, which has three congregations in three different towns. A round trip takes about an hour and a half. I am the parish secretary, monthly newsletter editor, and part of our congregation's planning team for Sunday services. Our congregation in Eidsvold consists of ten people. We have a minister for two services per month, but we will lose her next year. My question to you is, am I allowed to use what you post in our services, and can I print information off the website in our newsletter? The newsletter is free of charge and is one of the outreach programs we have running. Many farmers are isolated, and with the extended drought, we try to get our newsletter to those that can't make it to the service. Our congregations are not rich. The money goes to special needs, so I donate the ink, paper, and so on that it costs to do my jobs. I tell you this not because I want praise, but to tell you that we have no money to pay for material. We rely on what we are allowed to have free. 
could you please either give me permission to use your material with recognition to you or whoever has written the material or tell me that I am not to use it. Hebrews 13, Hebrews 11.35 comes to mind when I learn of people like this, a saint, quote, of whom the world is not worthy. By the way, this Alsea Christian is not alone in her church experience. You read a lot today about large, wealthy megachurches with famous pastors. These monster churches offer some advantages. I know, I attend one. But of the roughly 400,000 congregations in America, more than half have fewer than 75 regular attenders. In isolated rural areas, the average size of a church is about 50, and in urban settings, about 100. Very common, extremely ordinary, unremarkable, and about as small as you can get and still keep the doors open. The small Presbyterian church in North Carolina where I grew up fits this profile. We had no pastor, nor even a youth group. My mother was the part-time organist and choir director. At a good Wednesday night practice or Sunday morning worship service, she was lucky to have six to eight singers. Many members were tobacco farmers. Roy was a mail carrier, Morris an accountant, Trent sold new cars, Ralph sold used cars, and Carter was a high school teacher and driver education instructor. Some women worked for pay outside the home, but I only remember two. Janet was a single divorcee who smoked too much and the mother of a football teammate. Today she is dying of emphysema in an assisted care facility where my mother lives. Ruby also worked because her husband had multiple sclerosis, but I don't remember what she did. Then there was eccentric Addie and her son Eddie, a lovable Down syndrome adult who was also designated honorary assistant football coach at our high school. They never missed church. Her other son, Reggie, though, was an elusive sort who worked for the FBI. He never attended church. Some members left the church in 1973 to protest the ordination of women. Our pastor, so it was said, had drinking and marital problems. I believe that I am a Christian today because of the everyday lives of these ordinary saints. They prayed for me taught my Sunday school classes, and cheered at our Friday night football games. Soren Kierkegaard admitted that he was an intellectual aristocrat. His father, in fact, was one of the wealthiest men in Denmark, so his inheritance meant that he never worked, but instead could pour his short life entirely into his writing. But every day he grabbed his favorite walking stick, or an umbrella, and took a walk in Copenhagen for what he called his, quote, people bath, end quote. Paradoxically, although he was totally inaccessible to people when he was at home writing, on these walks, Kierkegaard earned a well-deserved reputation as a virtuoso of the casual encounter with common people. In a journal entry from 1849, he described Quote, how indescribably satisfying it is to me to be friendly and kind and attentive and sympathetic to precisely that social class which is all too neglected in the so-called Christian state, end quote. 
To meet and greet these common people gave Kierkegaard unfeigned joy. One person who recalled his frequent stays at the mail coach inn in Horsholm in northern Zeeland commented how Kierkegaard loved to linger with the laborers in the barns or with the stonebreakers at the roadside, so much so that the stonebreakers would inquire about his next visit. Thus did Kierkegaard understand himself as a street philosopher who disdained the snobby and aloof affectations of ostensibly important people. Instead, he wanted, quote, quite literally to make ordinary daily life into one stage, to go out and teach in the streets, end quote. The celebrity culture of our personality cults that pervades our society is alive and well in our churches. Protestant evangelicals might view saints differently than Catholic or Orthodox believers, but we fawn over those whom we elevate as extraordinary, defer to their authoritarian declamations, and keep silent about their demagogic pronouncements. These are not bad people with questionable motives, but is still an unfortunate commentary on our apparent deep need for everything that is bigger, better, faster, and stronger. In his book, Losing Moses on the Freeway, Chris Hedges comments on this pathological tendency for human beings to try to transcend their finitude, to overcome their entirely ordinary lives that are characterized by banalities of all sorts, submission to convention, pain, failure, and boredom. Fearing the unremarkable, we make the normal abnormal. We cannot accept that our lives are is as insignificant as they seem, and so we, quote, redouble our efforts to be extraordinary, end quote. Jealousy, envy, longing, and chronic striving are never far from such a mindset. I think of this as the Lake Wobegon effect, a longing to live in that utopia where, where all the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average. We find it unbearable to believe that we might be weak instead of strong, or below average instead of above average in looks, intelligence, or wealth. The psalmist for this week encourages us to admit just that, that we just might be, quote, poor and needy, Psalm 70, verse 5 even if we find ourselves rich and self-sufficient. We can thus comfortably take our places among the everyday lives of ordinary saints who have gone before us and led the way. You will not see the names of these saints on the cover of a magazine, but they will drive you to the dentist, collect your mail when you vacation, walk the family dog, Xerox the weekly bulletin, visit you in the hospital, or bring your family a tuna casserole if they cannot, and make sure you get to church. Thank God for ordinary saints in isolated Australia or in remote Danish Zealand. They get my vote this All Saints Day. For our book review this week, I review the book The New American Militarism, how Americans Are Seduced by War by Andrew Basevich, New York, 
Oxford University Press, 2005, 270 pages. In his new book, The New American Militarism, Andrew Basevich desacralizes our idolatrous infatuation with military might, but he does so in a way that avoids the partisan sloganeering of both the left and the right that belies so much of our discourse today. Basevich's personal experiences and his professional expertise lend his book an air of authenticity that I found compelling. A veteran of Vietnam and subsequently a career officer, a graduate of West Point and later Princeton where he earned a PhD in history, director of Boston University's Center for International Relations, Basevich describes himself as a cultural conservative who views mainstream liberalism with skepticism, but who is also a person whose disenchantment with what passes for mainstream conservatism embodied in the present Bush administration and its groupies is just about absolute. Finally, he identifies himself as a conservative Catholic. Idolizing militarism, Basevich insists, is far more complex, broader, and deeper than scapegoating either political party, accusing people of malicious intent or dishonorable motives, demonizing ideological fanatics as conspirators, or replacing a given administration. No, not merely the state or the government, but society at large is enthralled with all things military. Our military idolatry, Basevich believes, is now so comprehensive and beguiling that it pervades our national consciousness and perverts our national policies. We have normalized war, romanticized military life that formerly was deemed degrading and inhuman. We've measured our national greatness in terms of military superiority and harbor naive, unlimited expectations about how waging war, long considered a tragic last resort that signaled failure, can further our national self-interests. Utilizing a military metaphysic to justify our misguided ambitions to recreate the world in our own image with ideals that we imagine are universal has taken about 30 years to emerge in its present form. It is just this marriage between utopian ends and military means that Basevich wants to annul. How have we come to idolize military might with such uncritical devotion? Basevich likens it to pollution. Quote, the perhaps unintended but foreseeable byproduct of prior choices and decisions made without taking fully into account the full range of costs likely to be incurred." End quote. In successive chapters, he analyzes six elements of this toxic condition that combined in an incremental and cumulative fashion. After the humiliation of Vietnam, what he considers an unmitigated disaster, the military set about to rehabilitate and reinvent itself, both in image and in substance. With the all-volunteer force, we move from a military comprised of citizen soldiers that were broadly representative of all society to a professional warrior caste that by design isolated itself from broader society, 
in that by default employed a disproportionate percentage of enlistees from the lowest socioeconomic class. War making was thus done for us by a few of us, not by all of us. Second, the rise of the neoconservative movement embraced American exceptionalism as our national end and superior coercive force as the means to franchise it around the world. Myth-making about warfare sentimentalized, sanitized, and fictionalized war. The film Top Gun is only one example of what Basevich calls a glittering new image of warfare. Fourth, without the wholehearted complicity of conservative evangelicalism, Militarism would have been inconceivable in Basevich's view, which is a tragic irony when you consider that the most Christian nation on earth did far less to question this trend than many ostensibly secular nations. Fifth, during the years of nuclear proliferation and the fears of mutually assured destruction, a priesthood of elite defense analysts pushed for what became known as the Revolution in Military Affairs, RMA. RMA pushed the idea of limited and more humane war by using game theory models and technological advances that had euphemisms like clean bombs or smart bombs. But here too, says Basevich, our exuberance created expectations that became increasingly uncoupled from reality, as the current Iraq debacle demonstrates. Finally, Despite knowing full well that dependence upon Arab oil made us vulnerable to the geopolitical maelstroms of that region, we have continued to treat the Persian Gulf as a cheap gas station. How to ensure our Arab oil supply, protect Saudi Arabia, and serve as Israel's most important protector has always constituted a squaring of the circle. Sordid and expedient self-interest, our pursuit of happiness ever more expansively defined, was only later joined by more lofty rhetoric about exporting universal ideals like democracy and free markets. Or, to put it a different way, the latter have only been a misguided means to secure the former. Basevich opens and closes with quotes from our founding fathers. In 1795, James Madison warned that of all the enemies of public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. Similarly, late in his life, George Washington warned the country of, quote, those overgrown military establishments which, under any form of government, are inauspicious to liberty and which are to be regarded as a particularly hostile to re Republican liberty, end quote. My film review this week is of a Turkish film called Distant, from the year 2002. Mamet is a man in midlife who has lost all joy and passion for life. He is a professional photographer who insists to his friends that, quote, photography is dead, end quote. He watches television for endless hours in his dark apartment, frequents bars and restaurants all by himself, worries about his mother who was hospitalized, chain smokes, and badly misses his former wife, Nazon, who was immigrating to Canada with her new husband. Then his relative Yusuf shows up on his doorstep in Istanbul, unemployed and actually unemployable. 
Yusuf upsets all Mamet's petty habits and routines, leaving lights on, smoking in the wrong rooms, not flushing the toilet, littering beer cans, and the like. The film explores the palpable loneliness and lostness of these two, two men and how they interact. Truly, they are quote-unquote distant from any meaningful friendship with each other, the world, or even their own selves. This film is in Turkish with English subtitles. Finally, for poetry for November 6, we have posted the poem The Observer by Reiner Maria Rilke, based upon the genitive 32 narrative of Jacob at the River Jabok. I can tell a storm by the way the trees are whipping compared to when quiet against my trembling windows and I hear from afar things whispering I couldn't bear hearing without a friend or love without a sister close by. There moves the storm, the transforming one, and runs through the woods and through the age, changing it all to look ageless and young. The landscape appears like the verse of a psalm, so earnest, eternal, and strong. How small is what we contend with and fight, how great what contends with us. If only we mirrored the moves of the things and acquiesced to the force of the storm, we too could be ageless and strong. For what we can conquer is only the small, and winning itself turns us into dwarfs. But the everlasting and truly important will never be conquered by us. It is the angel who made himself known to the wrestlers of the Old Testament. For whenever he saw his opponents propose to test their ironclad muscle strength, he touched them like strings of an instrument and played their low-sounding chords. Whoever submits to this angel, whoever refuses to fight the fight, comes out walking straight and great and upright. And the hand, once rigid and hard, shapes around as a gently curved guard. No longer is winning a tempting bait. One's progress is to be conquered instead by the ever mightier one. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 6, 2005. And please join us every Monday for a new essay, book note, film review, and poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.